0: Uh, we're going to review a little bit uh, about last night, since it was so disjointed. Um, try to get that together, and then we'll go on and talk about the problems that God had in redeeming man. We're talking last night about God, and as, as God created man to live in fellowship with Him, live in relationship with Him. By the way, all of, our, all of our doctrine of salvation has to be related to relationship, because the whole thing that God is trying to reestablish is broken relationship. We talk about sin, we should talk about it in respect to relationship. Okay? When we transgress the law, the law is what? It is love. And so, if we have been failing to, to, um, to will the highest good towards other moral beings, we haven't been loving them. We've been breaking relationship with them. And the whole thing centers around maintaining relationship. And if we don't will the highest good towards someone else, we break the relationship with them. Then we're not allowed to, um, to, to enjoy the privilege of having that relationship. It's interesting in um, in Christianity that the freedom and the form is the same thing. The freedom that we have is love. The relationship. The form that we have is love. See? The, the freedom and the form in Christianity are both the same. Love. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so then uh, take a little different expression, but they're the, basically the same. So then we have God that created man to have relationship with him, and then m- both God and man, knowing that it was for... The highest good of what is for the highest good of God and for the universe. Know that they should choose a particular thing. That is, they should choose to love. And then God has expressed that in government because He felt Himself responsible to take that position. Um, He has enforced He has enforced the law by the expression of law, Um, the law that has always been there: that you shall um, well love, basically. And He's enforced that with: you shall not steal, you shall not uh, commit adultery in negative fashions, he enforced it in positive fashions, you shall do this, okay? Um, And then, uh, because of that, because he's enforcing law, he had to enforce sanctions or consequences to the law because only through sanctions can you uh, try to direct uh, a moral being. You can only do that through consequences because you eliminate the moral being if you start using force. So you can only use influence directed to the moral being's mind to try to get the being to do what the being knows is right. But you cannot ensure that you will get the being to do what is right. You can't do that and still have a moral being. You would eliminate free will if you did that. Okay? So, we looked at some of the... that the reason for punishment is because of the consequences of sin. Because sin is bad. Because sin is detrimental. It's destructive. God has, in His wisdom and His love, enforced moral law. And He uses... Uh, sanctions to enforce that, impress upon our mind uh, the importance of keeping the law. Now, we saw that he doesn't set up the sanctions as motives, but he does use them to impress upon us the importance of doing what is right. But he does not set them up as sanctions. So when the Scripture says, if you sin, this will happen, it does not mean that you should not sin so that it won't happen. It's not to become your motive. But if you choose to do what you know is right because it's for the highest well-being of God and for the rest of the universe then automatically it will not happen but your motive is to be purely out of the highest well-being of God in the universe because you desire that that you choose to do what is right okay? you can apply that to becoming a christian as well if the reason that you want to become a christian is because the highest well you are, as you continue in sin you are causing misery to God and to the universe and other moral beings around you and to yourself which is also wrong to cause misery to yourself, Um, as you continue in that, it is wrong. And we understand intuitively it's wrong. We sense that. And we don't have to go any farther back than that. That it simply is wrong. We recognize that the well-being of the universe should be chosen rather than the ill-being or the misery of the universe. And it feels, to some of us, it might feel a little bit uneasy to say that we can't go any farther back than that, but it's because it's such a basic thing. Obligation is just so basic to our understanding as moral beings. And we don't have to have any reason other than the ill-being or the well-being of the universe is at stake. I mean, that should sound like a good enough reason, I mean. But, uh, yeah. um, Charles Finney pointed out that if you had intellect and will, but no emotions, you would not be able to perceive what was right and wrong. If you take out any section of the human being, of the moral being, the, the being uh, is going to, cannot function as a moral being okay if you take out um, take out the the will choices cannot be made so contemplation and emotional reaction might be able to be made but choices could not so you have no moral being if you take out the intellect contemplation can't take place (laughs) you see you might have emotional reactions um, but you wouldn't be able to make choices because because of lack of contemplation you'd be basically like an animal that's how i see animals as without will but having having rudimentary emotions and Some kind of intellect. Very rudimentary. Um, And then if you take out the emotional responses, a being could contemplate what is good and evil and make a choice, but the being would not be able to perceive what the value of that choice is because it would not be able to sense what kind of effect it has. Do you understand that? In other words, if if I make a choice and I perceive that it is going to affect somebody else and it's going to cause misery in them, I perceive that by the fact that I as a being can also perceive misery. But if I had no capacity to perceive misery or well-being, <clears throat> that is an in emotion, an emotional, in sensibilities, if I couldn't sense that, if it were just an abstract, if good and evil were just simply an abstract thing that took place in my intellect, but were not related to well-being and misery as far as sensibility was concerned, I wouldn't know really which one should be chosen. I could say abstractly this is good and this is evil, but I wouldn't be able to say which one was better or worse. And good and evil would only be terms for different choices, but I wouldn't be able to say this one should be chosen and that one should not, because I wouldn't be able to sense the well-being, whether or not it resulted in well-being or misery. See, that's just um, an extension of the idea that our um, that our, our sense of morality or our doctrine of morality in Christianity is teleological. It depends on the results of the choice. It's not resonant within the choice itself. It were, if it were deontological, you could do without your emotions. <coughs> and you could say, this is right and this is wrong, without having to have any sense of how it would affect other, other beings or yourself. <coughs> okay. just thought you might find that interesting. If you didn't have emotions, you wouldn't be able to uh, sense really what was what was good and bad. Isn't that interesting? So we don't, we don't play down our emotions as Christians, we just don't base everything in our life on them. But we should have them. We should get happy. We should get sad. You know, if the circumstances and the situation is uh, such that we should weep, well, we should weep. Okay. Um, yes. Let's go on. So there's a difference then between a sanction and a natural consequence. And God has said that we can be set free from the punishment that we deserve, but not necessarily from the consequences, although we may at sometimes be able to have that now when man rebelled against God and went away from him and went into sin which is one thing I noticed that I didn't do last night it was after we went through what sin was not I didn't say what sin was <laughs> This is a very basic thing I said well Lord what happened tonight and the Lord said well he forgot to say what sin, what sin is oh yeah I said five things from the scripture what sin is but I didn't give a definition of sin I just said sin is a choice well yeah you can okay in essence I gave that but Okay, we didn't talk about it. Um, okay, sin is a choice contrary to what you know. When you, it's when you choose to do something that you know is wrong, and that can be omission or commission. When you choose to do something that you know is wrong, and that can be an active choice to do something that you know is wrong, or it can be a choice to not do something that you know is right. But that's still a choice. The choice to not do something is still a choice therefore to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin so either way it's a choice it doesn't consist in our metaphysics but in our morals so when man rebelled against God and went into sin God had some automatic problems that came up and I'm sure he contemplated this before he ever created man <laughs> that he could have these problems because he created man with the capacity to rebel and um, if man did so, then God had to contemplate what is going to happen. That's where we get the phrase, Jesus was a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. It was in God's mind that man could rebel, and because man could rebel, then God had to contemplate the whole idea of atonement uh, before he ever created man. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> so look at we want to look at some problems that God had in bringing man back to himself. But first we want to look at what the problems are not Because many times people say that this is the problem when it really isn't. What are not the problems that God had in bringing us back to Himself? Be sure you catch the double negatives here. (laughs) What is not the problem? It is not the problem that God is unwilling to forgive. That is not a problem. God didn't have any problems with development of resentment or bitterness or holding a grudge against us had no problem that way God has always been wanting to forgive he's always been compassionate he's always been extending loving-kindness towards us so that is not the problem that God had in bringing us back to himself it does not reside in some kind of emotional emotionally vindictive attitude towards us nothing happened in the being of God when man changed say when Adam when Adam changed when he sinned, he assumed that God had changed and that's a very common thing for us to do. When we sin we think God has changed. When we are guilty we feel that God is going to be vindictive. We think God has changed because we changed. Um, it, uh, Adam God comes and walks in the garden after the after the, the fall of Adam and Eve. God comes and he walks in the garden and he says uh, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, uh, <laughs> Over here. And he says, Well, what, what, uh, what did you do, Adam? He says, Well, um, I was afraid of you when I heard you coming. And so I went and I hid myself. He thought that God had changed because he had changed. Now, was there anything in the character of God that he had to hide from? No. Not in the character of God. Did he have any reason to be afraid of God? No. What? Well, the fact that I deserve to be judged should not make me afraid of God. You see? Because then see, then it would appear as if you're only seeing half of the character of God. You see? The fact that I deserve to be judged um, shouldn't stop me from recognizing that God is still merciful and loving and that He has only my highest well being um, in in this motive, in His motivation. Shouldn't stop me. Um, it's sort of like the, the verse I think we had the other night um, that we can come we can even come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy. Even when we've done something wrong, we should still come boldly to Him. Because we we shouldn't be afraid of Him, but we recognize that that uh, that we deserve to be punished. There's nothing wrong with that. You should recognize you deserve to be punished. And looking at the consequences, we might look at those and go, yeah, I deserve to have those. And in some senses, we might be afraid to receive those consequences, but we should realize too that we deserve them and not be afraid to come to God. But we do that a lot. Think that God has changed because we have changed. Um, In Proverbs, it says, a man's foolishness subverts his own way and his heart rages against the Lord. He thinks that God has changed because he has. Or in Romans chapter 1, it says that they make, after they reject God they and won't give him thanks, they make God into their own image. And they bring God down to the level of man and then it starts going down from there. And four-footed, or yeah, man, four-footed beast, no, what's the second thing? Man and birds, the second thing, birds. Man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Is that how it goes? Corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It goes down from there. And uh, we see theological systems that have brought the image of God down to man. And I would expect that they'll go down from there. Like uh, Mormonism. Has brought brought the image of God down to man, and they now have a, a father with a physical body, and Jesus has a physical body, which, by the way, makes the unity between the two the material universe. Which, if God created the material universe, how is it that it's the unity between the the father and the son? Oh, that's in Romans one. Second. Romans 1.23 Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And I expect that the, in the Mormon church it's going to go down from there. So, um, interesting, that they, so the first thing that happened was they brought God down to their image and then immediately turned around and made man into God's image and said that man will eventually become God. You see? And the God, do you know their doctrine, Bill? They believe that the God that exists now used to be Adam. The God that we know as the Father was Adam. Yeah. And you really get into it. And this is the kind of thing that, um, um, Walter Martin is trying to expose. You know that he's into a lawsuit with the Mormons about. Six million dollars, or something like that. Yeah, Walter, we need to pray for him. We've been praying for him at the farm in the False Prophets Project. Walter Martin, the guy that wrote the book *The Kingdom of the Cults*, has spent a long time exposing the Mormon Church, and they 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 would constantly call him a liar, and they called him a liar one too many times, in too blatant a way, and he has sued them, the Mormon Church, for six million dollars and what the whole purpose is not the not to get the money out of it but what he wants to do is to expose the Mormon church and they're going to have to bring out documents that they have kept hidden for a long time you see so yeah we need but we need to pray Could you imagine having the spiritual forces behind the Mormon church at you as a person <laughs> walter martin needs help folks from the body of christ walter martin huh I don't think so. I think they're just getting prepared right now and they're trying to find out which, exactly which documents, he's getting together with his lawyers trying to figure out which documents are going to have to be brought out. That they're going to demand that these documents be brought out because he's made statements that have said they believe this and it's in certain documents and so those documents are going to have to be brought out if it's going to be proved whether or not they are actually, he was actually telling the truth about them. You see, because they called him a liar. And so they're going to have to bring out those documents. He hopes that's what he's, taking all different places he's said something and he's trying to pull out all those documents where they would show that, that they try to keep hidden. He wants to expose the church. I think it's great. Get him. Sick them. Okay, can you imagine being in that position? Ah. Talk about spiritual warfare. Anyway, they um, he'd <coughs> probably be in danger of his physical life as well. You know, not just not just from the spiritual forces but probably from Mormons as well that are may get a bit hot-headed okay so um, first point is that God is not unforgiving it's not a problem with God's willingness to forgive all the way through the Old Testament we see some of the most tender statements about God's uh, desires for us um, let's see if I can find it right away says uh it really does i'll find it here sometime it's the one that um oh that you had only kept my
1: law where is it
0: I always quoted him properly, so I want to. <laughs> I'm not finding it. Ay, ay, ay. Caught with my Bible down. Forty eight. Eighteen. Yes. Thank you. 17, 18, 19. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, and your offspring like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. If only you had paid attention to my commandments. There's a place in Jeremiah, I think it's in Jeremiah, where God is speaking about having to, about having to judge the people. And God says, Oh my heart, my heart. See? And you can see the grief of God, that he doesn't want to have to do that, but that he had to do so. It's also very interesting in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, you see, That God says, I looked through the land to find one man that would be able to stand before me for the land, but I couldn't find one, so I had to destroy the land. How important is it? (laughs) Is our moral agency? Well, there's a verse on it. If he could have found one person, that could have stood for the land, but he couldn't. Couldn't find even that one person. But anyway, the problem is not that God is is unwilling to forgive. God has no problems with having bitterness or resentment towards us. There's no problem in wanting to forgive us. That's not His problem. Number two, it is not that man's sin is too great. It is not that man's sin is too great. Man is in rebellion against God has pitted himself in his selfishness and his self-gratification against God and against what is good for the well-being of the universe and for God, caused great grief to God, destroyed himself, brought alienation within himself and with other people, brought disease um, into the creation, or I should say allowed it to affect man. The germs may have been there already. It's just that when man fell, probably the uh, activities became a little different. So I feel anyway, personally. I think man's body was just in a state that it wouldn't be affected by disease, even though the germs were already there. Personally, that's my own personal opinion. Take it for what it's worth. (laughs) okay? But it's not because man's sin is too great. It's not because of the great havoc that man has wreaked in the universe because of his his sin. But it's... um, Yeah, right. We won't go into that. God didn't have any problem because man's sin was so great. That wasn't his problem in being able to restore man to himself. God's mercy extends a lot farther than that. Okay? Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. See? Or three? (laughs) I'm counting and I've got letters. It is not a problem that man doesn't seek after God. Now it says in Romans 3 that man does not seek after God. Well actually it's a quote from the Old Testament, but Paul the Apostle whips out a bunch of scriptures from the Old Testament here. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of excuse me, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Some indictment, huh? That's in Romans three, ten to eighteen. But man doesn't seek after the Lord. Man doesn't seek after the Lord. It says, there is none who seeks for God. Verse 11. But it's not a problem that man did not seek after God. Well, I wouldn't say it is not a problem. It is a problem. But it is not a problem as far as God's being able to bring us back to himself. To to himself. Himself, I guess you could say too. um, To provide a way that man could be able to come back. It was not a problem that man was not seeking after God. The glorious truth about that on the other side is that God was seeking after man. God came looking. (laughs) God came in the garden and looked for Adam. He didn't leave him out there. came and looked for him. So it's not a problem that man doesn't seek after God, because God is actively seeking after man. Jesus is the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. How about that? And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, Interesting verse in Matthew that says this. um, All things have been handed over to me by my Father... And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Next verse. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To whom does the Son will to reveal the Father? That was... Matthew 11, 27 and 28. Yes. Okay. Yes. You, we, uh, I, there's a truth in the Scripture that says that we would not come if the Father didn't draw us. You see? But Jesus also said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And it talks about being drawn by the truth in that same passage of Scripture that the Father would draw people. So... Um, We have to keep both sides of that. We wouldn't come because of our selfishness if God didn't move on us. The other side of that is that God moves on all people. God draws everyone. Whether or not they come, that's another matter. Okay? So the problem is not that man doesn't seek after God because God is seeking after man. And then number four, it is not a problem that man is unable to repent. It's not a problem that man is unable to repent. Man is able to repent. God very clearly points that out. Commands us to repent. Says that we can do so. Says that we can keep his commandments, etc., etc., etc. But some people have viewed this as the reason why God um, had problems in the atonement was because man was unable to repent. And thus they come out with the doctrine that God therefore has to force man to be saved because man cannot choose to repent, and so therefore God must, by force, in some mystical, metaphysical fashion, cause men to be saved or change their hearts. However, you want to put the, they put the words regenerate people. And when I was in the Baptist church, the word regeneration was used, but by regeneration, what they meant was irresistible grace. Because the word regenerate is used for irresistible grace. It sounds nice when you say that God gives you new life. The only thing is, it's unconditional. God gives you new life. He makes you have new life. And then because of that, you repent and you believe. As a response out of that. And it's the whole idea of irresistible grace. And it's commonly called regeneration because it sounds nicer than the idea of irresistible grace. You see, because that always, that's always going to cause problems in people's minds. That God, that God lovingly draws you and then makes you be saved. You say, and you go, "Oh yeah, that's a relationship." Okay. So many people have presented the problem as being the idea that man cannot repent, which of course that comes from the idea of the uh, total depravity of man. Now um, you know the five points of Calvinism, right? Tulip. Interesting, they came out of. Um, <laughs> came out of uh, the Council of Dort which is it well anyway um, yes the five points spells tulip total depravity most of you already know these but I'm just going to run through them briefly total depravity which means that man is completely depraved morally physically everything man is completely depraved and an extrapolation of that is man cannot keep God's law man can't do anything that's good See, man is completely, totally blown out. There isn't anything good that man can do. He cannot do it. It's not the fact, not the idea that he, he is not doing it, but that he cannot do so. It is impossible for him to keep the law of God. Now, you can see where that goes logically. He can't keep the law of God, and God condemns him to hell for not doing it. Okay, then the second point is unconditional election. unconditional election. That is, the idea that because God looked down through the course of history and saw that people were going to be totally depraved, that he was going to have to choose some people to be saved and some to be lost because if he didn't do something, everybody would be lost because of their total depravity. Stemming from Adam. It's a whole system. You can't just sort of treat one. You have to sort of treat the whole system. Um, then the third thing is limited atonement the idea that because God chose that these that is the elect he chose them you see that these people are going to be saved and these other people are not whether he did that actively or passively that is that he chose some were going to be saved and just ignored the rest which is passively or if he said you are going to be saved and you are going to be lost which isn't commonly held that's a positive positive idea Most people accept the positive-negative, that he said positively, you are going to be saved, and by the fact that he just neglected the rest and chose not to save them, they will be lost. Okay? So um, that's a little easier to handle emotionally. That's why most people hold the positive-negative view. So in limited atonement then, he only Jesus only died for those people who were going to be saved, that God was going to choose in history to save. He only died for those people. And... Uh, he made, it's very closely tied in with the idea that he made a direct literal payment for their sin. And the reason he made a direct literal payment, not a provision, like most of us would hold, not that Jesus' death was a provision and then we have to meet the conditions, you see, but that he made a direct literal payment for sin. And because he died for them, those people must be saved. They have to be saved because he died and directly paid for their sin. And they cannot be guilty of that sin. But you, you know, you follow that out. Well, that doesn't matter. The thing is, the thing is God will move on them and then as a response to that, they will enjoy the idea of being saved. But it's after they're already saved, you see. God does it to them. Of course, then with limited atonement that Jesus died directly and literally paid for their sins, then the next step is that God has to somehow apply that to them. But since they can't choose to repent, they can't choose to do what is good. God has to directly, by force, apply that to them. He has to change their heart. That's what we call irresistible grace. So He moves upon them and irresistibly changes them or regenerates them. <laughs> some are, some are, some aren't. Depends on the consistency with it. Um, people that are really super consistent usually they have no missionary, no missionary efforts, etc. Um, like the religious religious book discount house doesn't produce anything evangelical because they believe that they're they only should try to um, um, to build up the elect and they have no right to actually try and go and convert people the religious book discount house that puts out a lot of books cheaper for Christians and they feel that their whole ministry is to build up the elect and they have nothing to do with trying to bring people in okay now it depends on, on whether or not they're whether or not they're consistent some people say we 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 preach, and we preach the gospel, even the people who we know are going to be lost, even though they're never going to be able to be saved because God has not chosen them to be saved. But we preach the gospel, and then those who are the elect will hear the gospel, as if that meant anything, you see, as to whether or not they heard the gospel, since it's God's activity that saves them anyway. Um, But then we preach the gospel because God commanded us to do so. You see? We preach the gospel because God. Now I'm I'm thankful that they're obedient to the to the scripture, even though their doctrine may be all messed up at that point. At least they're obedient to the scripture and they pray and they they um um you know they do what the scripture says, even though they don't have any basis in their doctrine to do so. But anyway,
2: so
0: they say that the ones that are supposed to come somehow come to them They will be saved. Now, how they're saved is another thing. God will God will move upon them. And of course they believe that there are people who are elected that are amongst the Gentiles that you know, amongst the the totally heathen that've never heard anything um, uh they believe that there are people that are that will be that are elected out of that and will be saved. And of course it doesn't really make much difference as to whether or not they're living in sin or not. You, can, you know, it depends on how consistent you want to be with that. I'm not trying to give a big rundown on this right now. Actually, I'm just Trying to give a brief overview of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of Baptist churches hold to it. See, but a uh, lot of a lot of people, because they're because they think, you know, are are more they're either more or less consistent. The people who are thinking usually are less consistent with that idea. But you find people like um, there was a preacher stood up in in uh, I won't say where it was um, <coughs> stood up in a pulpit. And, uh, and one of our, uh, one of our members of Dillerum was in the congregation. And this preacher said, now, and he was serious. And he said, God is the author, this is unconditional election thing, a predestination. God is the author of all evil. He is the author of all war, all suffering, all death, all disease, all deformity. All of that is God's will. God wanted that to be in the universe. And then he leaned over with a little smirk and said, Now, isn't that hard to believe? And then he went on. He was serious that he believed that. And um, the winewimmer said, I felt like standing up and going, yes, that's hard to believe and I don't believe it. (laughs) But he would have lost his ministry to the people in his church if he'd done so. (laughs) Yeah, he was really ministering to the young people. And the young people were really suffering under this because they felt it didn't make any difference what they did. Because it's up to God as to whether I'm saved or lost. So... No, I'll live the way I want It's make any difference. But anyway, those are results. And people are more or less consistent with that. And the less consistent they are, the, the more glad I am. And the more consistent they are with the scripture, even, even if they don't have any background in their doctrine to do so. So, irresistible grace is the idea then that God makes people be saved. And then, of course, the natural result of that is P, perseverance of the saints. Or what we call eternal security. Perseverance of the saints i is irresistible grace (laughs) okay total depravity unconditional election limited atonement irresistible grace perseverance of the saint it's a whole system and if you pull one plug out of it pull one little section out of it all falls apart if you say that man is not saved by irresistible grace he's not made to be saved then the atonement of jesus cannot be a direct literal payment for sin it can only be a provision for man to be saved, if it really depends upon whether or not man repents. You see? And you could take out, take any section out at any point, like un- take unconditional election out, the idea that God has before determined who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost, and you immediately have to say that the atonement is not a direct literal payment for sin either. It can only be a provision if God has not said these people will be saved. Well, it wouldn't be a literal payment then, because it's conditional upon what you do, and a direct literal a direct literal payment for sin insures the salvation of the person. Now, see, most of us there's a problem here because most of us use the term payment because the Bible uses the phrase as a metaphor, and then we what we don't really hold the doctrine of direct literal payment like most Calvinists do. We talk about we say that we hold a payment view, and I was talking with a girl at the farm and. And she put out this. Well, I believe in a in a uh, in a payment theory of the atonement. And I very uh, quickly, before I even thought about what I was talking about, sliced her up, you know, and uh, which was very unloving, and uh, had to repent of that. <laughs> but uh, but when I shared with her later about what my view of the atonement was and what a direct literal payment of the atonement, uh, what that view really was, and, and I said, well, I believe in a provision for the, the forgiveness of mankind, that all men could be saved because it's a provision, but not that God has paid for certain men's sins directly and literally and they will have to be saved because he paid for them. There's nothing else that can happen. If the sins have been paid for directly and literally, which, <laughs> that's that's two pages from now. If the, if the um, sins have been paid for directly and literally, literally, then the judgment of the law cannot be placed on them. And so they will have to be saved because the law can no longer say that they're guilty. You see? If, if, if
1: they haven't appropriated that to their, to their own self, like somebody who can pay off a car that I own, that if I say, well, I'm, not, I'm too proud to accept that, I'm going to go ahead and pay it myself. That, to me, is what a person does who continues under the law. No, no, see, the back. thing
0: is, the, the person who becomes God, in this case, is the guy that, that sold you, that is selling you the car. And the guy that's selling you the car can never demand the payment of you if somebody else has paid it. And so you can't, you can't go to hell and suffer because that's a sanction that God enforces. And if the law has been paid for, God cannot send you to hell. You can't pay for it.
1: Ah, but then, then it's I, not a payment. Yeah, but if, if faith is not a work, that's, that's looking at this faith
0: with the work that we offer God as part of No, it's
1: not. Not
0: at all. No. Now, let me, can I use a bank example of payments and different pa- payment provision? You have a You have a bill. A, a, I mean, you have a uh, overdrawn whatever of $1,000. W- what you were doing writing a $1,000 check on a bank account like that, but I don't know. But you have, anyway, you, at the bank, you have this $1,000 thing that you have to pay. Maybe it's a loan. Something like that. And you have to pay this $1,000. And someone comes in and puts into their bank account $1,000 and says, if he comes in and he meets these conditions, you can transfer the $1,000 from my account to his account and pay pay his loan off, if he comes in and meets these conditions. That is a provision. But if the man comes in and puts the $1,000 on your account, that is a payment, and the bank can never charge you for that. It's taken care of. It's settled. And you, it doesn't matter whether you meet the conditions or not. It's taken care of. And the bank can never demand that of you again. So if God has directly and literally paid for my sins, then, if I, in respect to the law, I can never be judged guilty. And so therefore God can never, can never take that out on me. Yeah, so then really it's a provision and not an actual direct literal payment. See, most people use the word payment and yet they actually hold to a provision idea that it's conditional upon whether or not we, whether or not we accept it. Well then, really, it's like God has made a provision, but then it's dependent upon whether or not we accept it as to whether or not it will be applied to us. But in Calvinism, the idea of a direct literal payment is that at the cross, Jesus died directly and literally for the sins of certain people. And those people have had their, their, their quote, debt, whatever that is. They have had their sins completely, directly, literally paid for, and so when God looks at the, compares them with the law, he can never judge them for anything because it's already been paid for. You see? Now most people use the words payment, but they hold the idea of provision and they call it a payment. And so uh um, there are very few people that really hold to the direct literal payment view because that's uh, to do that you have to hold all the rest of it, unconditional election, irresistible grace and and so forth. And most people reject those, so they also Just from a simple reading of the Bible, you get the idea that uh, that God hasn't somehow taken care of people's sins, so that um, He can never judge them guilty again, but that He's taken care of people's sins in the way that you have to repent to receive it. You see, that comes across very clearly from the Scripture. So, to set you at ease, sometimes people, um, yeah, sometimes when it's been presented, the idea of a direct literal payment, because people use the word payment. They think that they actually believe a payment theory. But a lot of people use the word payment, but don't believe a payment theory. They believe a provision theory. You see? And so sometimes people that teach on it is not a payment, people freak out because they go, oh, my whole doctrine of the atonement is falling apart. Well really, they didn't believe a payment to start with. You see? They believed in provision. Well, they use the word they redefine the word world to mean and believe it or not, the elect. Or when they take statements that Jesus died for all men, they'll say, "Well, yes, all men, Jews, Gentiles." You see, but not all men, literally all men. You see? They have a little difficulty with a couple of couple of verses, you know, like in Timothy um, God is not. God is desirous that all men will come to the knowledge of the truth, and it's not in the context of Jew-Gentile. Um, and uh, um, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's talking about the whole world in reference to Jesus coming back again. So um, it's a bit difficult in those contexts, but usually they define that as Jew-Gentile. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They take that to mean Jew-Gentile. Uh, if you want to read a good book on the payment theory of the atonement, it's called, there's one... It's best best I've ever seen as far as presentation is concerned, called The Death of Death. Very old book. Now who wrote that? <laughs> Just went right out of my head. The Death of Death by John Owens. Is his name Owens? I think his last name is Owens. The Death of Death. It's written from a Calvinistic point of view about the idea that and he takes all of these scriptures that that are universal and he shows that he he tries to show, anyway, how all of them refer to either Jews, Gentiles, but the word all cannot be taken to mean literally all in any of those cases. Well, it's that, it's that there will be, there are elect in both the Jews and Gentiles. But the world that he's talking about is that those amongst the Jews and Gentiles that are going to be saved. So that the emphasis is that the Jews he thought that only the Jews could be saved. And so what they say is God was trying to make an emphasis that Jews and Gentiles could be saved, and that's the good news in the New Testament. But then, actually, only the elect that are amongst the Jews and Gentiles will really be saved. Past, present, and future in the payment theory. Yeah, well, see, under the payment theory... Um, what Marcus has asked is whether or not I'm going to deal with the pain. Yeah, well, see under the payment theory, um, what Marcus has asked is whether or not I'm going to deal with the pain, with the idea of past, present, and future sin has all been dealt with. Um, that's, you have, the only place you can get that is a payment theory. You see? Because if Jesus has made provision on the cross, then if I repent, I can be forgiven of my sin past. But if I sin again, then I have to have that provision applied to me again through repentance. You say, and so there's no provision for future sin. You say, I mean, there's a provision in the in the fact that Jesus has died, but future sin is not already forgiven. I should say it that way. But in the payment theory, all sin in that person's life has already been paid for. So past, present, and future, quote, if you're part of the elect, if you're a Christian, you see, and you're part of the elect, all sins, past, present, and future, are already dealt with. And so repentance, I, I had one person say this to me, repentance really isn't necessary for sin. It's only confession because you've already been forgiven. Yeah. yeah. How often that people... I'm trying to repeat it for the tape. How often that do people use it as a, as a cloak for this or as trying to escape responsibility? Well, I've run into some who have very consistently tried to use it. But uh, in most cases... People who try to use it, it's pretty weak, and you you just sort of, well, come on now. (laughs) And they recognize that they're being dishonest, and they lay it down. That most people do that. But um, I've run into one. I ran into one guy in a coffee shop, and he said I was saved at one time. I was saved at one time when I was what, 14? I think he said 13, 14. And uh, and he was living in all kinds of gross immorality at that point. And uh, he said, well, because I was saved, because I know, I know now that I'm a part of the elect, it doesn't really matter. I'll get that taken care of later or whatever. You know, It doesn't really matter. And I sat there wondering what to do and I started praying about it. And the Lord began to reveal to me the grief that the Lord had over this guy's living in immorality. And so instead of dealing with his doctrine, I just said, Is that name happened to you? Randy, sorry. but um, Instead of dealing with his doctrine, I just said, look, Randy. I said, what you're doing right now by your sin is that you're grieving God and God is hurt by what you're doing and because he's hurt and because I love him I'm hurt too and I began to communicate to him the grief of God over the fact that he was in rebellion against God he said but I was saved at one time I said I don't care right now you're sinning and so you're grieving God I don't care what standing you have with God quote quote apart from your state your state right now is grieving God you see? And so as I started to communicate that to him and he began to see that I was really grieved as well as the Holy Spirit was letting me know, revealing to me what was happening to the heart of God because of this guy's sin, he couldn't handle it, you see. And it didn't matter what kind of doctrine he had, when the grief of God started to be communicated to him over his sin, he made him very, he he couldn't deal with that because that was right now and that was, this is what you're doing, see, and so he got up and ran out of the coffee shop and then uh, I happened to be outside later and I was talking to him I was talking to somebody else, and I was outside, and I said, well, I just turned to him and said, well, Randy, have you decided to to give up, stop your grieving God? And he just turned and ran off down the street. Um, So, yeah, I haven't met too many people that have really seriously tried to uh, make an excuse for their sin, because I think that sort of either intuitively or because they've thought it through, most people recognize that it's really not true, (laughs) you know? That their sin past present and future has all been dealt with Um, but I have had I had did have one person tell me you know you don't have you only have to confess you don't have to repent that's not necessary anymore because once you're a part of the elect or if you are a part of the elect your sins already been dealt with so there's no reason to repent it's only confession that you should make and I thought whatever in the world would you confess for if you haven't repented if there's really nothing wrong what would you confess But anyway that was my problem Um. yeah, we really should go on. <laughs> hmm? Oh, are we going to go on? Okay. Oh, perseverance of the saints, yeah, that's where we were. We'll do that for the next couple of minutes, then we'll take a break. Okay, perseverance of the saints is the idea that because, okay, now start at the, we'll start at the top and run through so you get the whole picture. God saw that no one was going to be able to be saved or keep his law because they were all going to have sinful natures. They're all going to be totally depraved. They would not be able to do what God wanted them to do, not be able to do anything good. Okay? So therefore, he chose some people to be saved out of that. And of course, they, they point to the fact that this is merciful because everybody should have been lost. Okay? <laughs> okay, now that's, what, that's how they usually present it. The problem that I have with that is why he didn't choose everybody. Okay? That means he's arbitrary in his, in his mercy. Okay? So then, um, so he chose some people to be saved and others he either passed over or he chose them to be lost, however you look at that. And then the third thing is that, that God only, Jesus only died for those people who are going to be saved. J, uh, J. Adams in his book, Competent the Council* says, the counselor cannot tell the counselee that Christ died for him because the counselor doesn't know whether or not Christ died for the counselee because he believes in limited atonement, that Jesus only died for the elect. He didn't die for all men. How'd you like that? Somebody comes and says, did Jesus die for me? Well, I don't know. He may have, he may not have. He says, what you do is you say, repent to the person. And if they are able to repent, then, God, then Jesus died for them. Charles Finney points out the absurdity of that, in that the only basis upon which you really can repent is if you know that an atonement was made for you the only basis upon which you can have faith towards God is if an atonement was made for you. And so what they say is you get that knowledge after you repent. And he says, no, you have to have that knowledge before you repent and to be able to repent. You see? Yeah, right. Okay. so then, um, okay, limited atonement. Then Jesus only died for certain people. And then he makes those people be saved because they wouldn't be able to choose to be saved or to repent. So he makes them be saved. And then lastly, they have to stay saved. They can't lose their salvation because, in respect to the law, they can never be held guilty again because God has obliterated their in, in relationship to the law. Shwack. I um, was reading in one um, Calvinistic book the idea. That got, the guy said this. He said, "For the Christian, the re- the relationship between sin and its consequences has been broken. There are no consequences for sin for the Christian." No I went, ay, ay, ay. Well, at least he was consistent. I mean, you know, being consistent. I didn't agree with him, but he was consistent. Okay? So then um, the last thing there is perseverance of the saints or eternal security. Once you're saved, you always have to be saved because it didn't depend upon your... It isn't conditional, you see? And so because it's not conditional, because it's unconditional, you can't be unsaved. You have to always be saved. So we we'll just take a brief rundown on that because that's um, that's a, just a brief overview of the system. I would suggest that you... Um, can either get in the tape library here. Do you already have my series on uh, Reformed Theology? I've done a series of five, six tapes, and the, the first five are T-U-L-I-P, and the last one is the first lecture I gave this week on hermeneutics. And so um, you can get that if you want to, whatever. Still? <laughs> okay. So then, in the in the view of this kind of theology, you can see where the, that the the idea of salvation in Calvinism is basically metaphysical. It's by force. You see, God comes to you and changes your heart. And the whole idea of the atonement is that Jesus was dealing with the law in relationship to people. And that was all he was doing was paying for their sins directly and literally, so that in respect to the law, the person no longer could be held guilty. Now, may I mention something, and don't panic when I say this. We commonly speak of ourselves as not being guilty anymore, and we use that term in a particular fashion, but technically we cannot say that. We cannot technically say, I am not guilty, because what does guilt mean? It, 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 it's, it asks the question about the law. Have you ever broken the law? Okay? Now, it, God does not bring you to the place where you are not guilty when you repent, he brings you to the place where he does not have to treat you as if you were guilty. It's in the execution of the law. It doesn't have to do with whether or not you actually have broken the law. He never brings you to the place where he can say about you, you've never broken the law. He never does that, you see. The law doesn't say that you have done something wrong. He never does that. What he does is brings us to the place where he can treat us as if we didn't break the law because of the atonement that Jesus has made. In other words, he's able to release us. That's what we call forgiveness. But he never brings us to the place where we are not guilty. Now, we usually use the word, not words, not guilty, to mean that we will not be punished for what we have done. Okay? So it's okay to use the word that way, but we do need to recognize that technically, guilt is never removed. Otherwise, we're saying wrong things about God's relationship to his law and our relationship to the law. We're saying that we've never broken it. You see, and we can never say that. Through all eternity, we'll have to say, yes, I broke the law, but God did not treat me according to my breaking of the law because of the atonement of Jesus and because of my acceptance of that. Okay, The, the atonement of Jesus is the basis upon which God can do that. And then whether or not we repent is the, the conditions as to whether or not He can apply that to us. Well, we'll take a break here. Okay, Now we want to discuss what really are the problems that God has, that God has faced. What did God have to accomplish in bringing man back to himself? We saw that it was not that God was unwilling to forgive. It is not that man's sin is too great. It is not that man doesn't seek God because God seeks man. It is not that man is unable to repent because he is well able to repent. There are other problems that God has. And these problems concern, basically, His justice. They concern His justice. And we're going to see, begin to see, how God's justice and God's mercy come together in the atonement made through Jesus. Okay? God's justice and God's mercy coming together. Okay, now, God has to be just To basically four things, but these four things are so enormous that it covers just about everything. God has to be just. We'll come back to this, I'll let him down. He has to be just, number one, he must be just to his government. God must be just to his government. When God establishes the sanctions of the law and enforces the law through those sanctions and carries them out as the judge and governor of the universe, governor and therefore have to be judge, um, when he does that, he does that in his wisdom and in his love for the highest well-being, he has become the governor of the universe and he therefore has to be the judge. He does that out of his love out of his wisdom, and for our highest well-being. His motives are totally pure. Now, because he's established this for our highest well-being, then we must assume that this government was absolutely necessary. Because if he he expressed government where it wasn't necessary, he's just a tyrant. So it must have been absolutely necessary for our well-being, for God to govern us, and to say... This is not to be done or this is to be done so that we could know as human beings how best to choose for the highest well-being of God and the others around us so that we could live in the greatest harmony in relationship with one another and not be um, all fragmented in, in alienation from God and ourselves and other people. So when he expresses His His uh, these sanctions, things like the soul that sins shall die, the wages of sin is death, Um, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I have set before you this day the way of life and the way of death. Choose life, for why would you want to die? When he talks about the consequences of sin, life, death, fellowship with me, separation from me. Your sins have separated between you and your God. When he talks about these things, he's enforcing it for our good. I've, I've told you these things this day for your good. He says, that's why he's enforced law, for our good. So then, when he enforces that, and he has a problem with his government, and the problem goes like this, how do I now, now that man has rebelled and deserves to be punished, how do I now just say, well, now I'm not going to punish him? Because he really deserves to be punished. It's for the highest well-being of the universe that this person is punished. And so, now how can I stop that? How can I just suddenly um, go, well, okay, we'll just sort of erase the law. I'll pat man on the back and say, there, there, everything's all better. And uh, and now we'll just sort of forget the fact that you uh, have rebelled and have been living in selfishness and self-gratification, have harmed other people, have been grieving me, and we'll just sort of forget about it. See, God can't do that with the law that He established in His love and in His wisdom towards us. He just can't just sort of suddenly wave the whole law and say, we won't have that anymore. Okay? He can't just suddenly say, the soul that sins shall be rewarded. He can't do that for us. It's not good for us. And it's not good for him either. And so, he's got a problem with his government. How does he bring man to the place where he can justly lay aside the penalty that man deserves to have and yet not destroy his government over man. How does God do that? You see the problem? If God says, the soul that sins shall die, and suddenly he starts bringing people to the place where the the, the scripture should read, the soul that sins shall live, um, he has suddenly become, to those people that are not in that position, he has suddenly become arbitrary. He has suddenly laid aside his law. It's, It's no longer law. You see? Totally, uh, like we said before, based on freedom and not form. And therefore, uh, people would have a right to accuse God. God, that person deserves to be punished because of the things that they did that were wrong. Now, you're not punishing them. How is How is it that you can do that? And God's got to supply some answer to that or people will be able to say against God, moral beings that are thinking will be able to say against God, you're not being fair. Because you established that law in your wisdom. We needed that law. And now you're just saying, well, we won't have it anymore. Okay, And so the being could accuse God of being unjust. So how does God uphold his law and, and enforce it and at the same time provide a way for man to be able to escape the penalty that he really deserves to have? That's one of God's problems. Okay, number two. When God when or when man rebels against God, man begins to have a wrong view of God. As we talked about before, we think we we change God into our image. We think that God has become bad because we have become bad or that we have to mistrust him. We cannot trust him because we can't trust ourselves anymore. And so what we do is we basically bring God down, make him in our image. And so when we think that God is an ogre, we can't have a relationship with him. Because you cannot trust in a person that you think is unjust. You cannot trust in a, a person that you think is uh, weird or arbitrary. You cannot trust in a person that you think is out to get you. <laughs> okay, And so how do you have a relationship with a person that you think, you, you've got their character all turned around in your head to where they can't be trusted, they're not good, they're arbitrary, Uh, They're out to get me, and so forth. You can't have a relationship with a person like that, you see. Or I should say, you can have a relationship with a person like that, but um, you won't have one because you think that there's something that they're really not. Okay? So then, in uh, one of the problems that God has is how does He straighten out, in man's mind, man's concept, man's perverted, corrupted concept of what God is like. God has to do something that shows man, no, I am not like that, so that in man's mind is impressed. God is just. God is loving. God is merciful. I can trust Him. And therefore, man's heart is prepared and man's mind is prepared so that he can have a relationship with God. Okay? That's why we're teaching some of these things this week is to sort out some false concepts So that we can be free in our relationship with God because we don't have subconsciously things going on in our head that somehow God is unjust or he's an ogre or I can't trust him or he's arbitrary or something like that. Okay, Because you can't really have a relationship with a person that you don't feel you can trust because of their character. Okay, So then how is God going to impress on man's mind that God is not like that? That the idea that they have of God is because they have sinned and it's a wrong idea See, and that God is not really like how's he gonna do that? That's one that's another problem that God has. He has to be just to his own character. God does. Okay. Third thing. Now <laughs> I'm counting and I'm writing letters up here. Third thing is that God's got to be just to man's selfishness. Now, this is not the same as number one, in that in number one, God has to punish man's selfishness. Number three, what we're talking about is that God has to be able to show man that his pride and his hypocrisy and his selfish intention in life, his self-gratification and living for himself is wrong. It's got to be impressed on man that man's selfishness is wrong. And man has to be brought to the place where he recognizes that he's been living dishonestly because he's been living in sin. He's been living unintelligently. He's been living in self-gratification centered completely around himself. And he's got to see that is wrong and that I have to change and be completely against that and be living a completely different way. So God has to be just to man's selfishness in this respect. Um, Number one is that he has to judge it. Number three is that he has to show man that that is wrong and that man has to come to the place where he says, I have been proud. I recognize that I have been a hypocrite. I recognize that I have been living in selfishness and that is unintelligent and dishonest. Man's got to be brought to that place. If God is going to try to restore relationships, you see God trying to have relationship with a, a selfish, hypocritical, proud person? He can't do that. You can't have an honest, loving, uh, relationship, an intimate, personal relationship with somebody that's proud and selfish and rebellious against you. Can't do that. You see? Won't work. So that has got to be changed in the mind of man, or God will never be able to establish relationship with man again. Okay, And lastly, before, these aren't the only problems, of course, but these cover the major areas, is that God's got to be just to man's will. This is what we just talked about, about Calvinism. And the idea in Calvinism, all the way through, is that God moves upon man, that it is all from God's point of view. Okay? Now, the opposite of that, the opposite extreme, is that it's all from man's side. The idea of works, man can earn his favor with God, etc., etc. Now, we have a, we have a one that stands right in the middle, and we hope that this, we keep this balance and keep it biblical, and that is that both are involved. God has to do something from his side, or man would not be able to be saved, and man has to do something from his side because it concerns relationship. It can't be all from God's side, or all from man's side, or that's unbalanced. It ha- then it would have nothing to do with relationship. You see, this is eternal life, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and the One that You have sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. We we commonly say that eternal life is a relationship with Jesus, and then we don't carry that through in the rest of our doctrine. Happens very frequently. We say eternal life is a relationship with God, and then we don't carry it through. You see, if it's really a relationship with God, relationships are conditional upon how we respond to one another. Relationships can be broken off. Okay, so then we, and you'll say, people will say, well, relationship is, you know, or, or eternal life is a relationship with God, but you can never lose it. Okay, <laughs> which doesn't fit into that. That's the idea of perseverance of the saints. Anyway, um, so God has to be just to man's will, and that He has to leave man's will free. If he brings man back to himself, he can't do it by force. He has to, in all of it, in all of the transactions that he has with man, leave man's will free to have this relationship or the relationship is going to be meaningless. God may may as well be having a relationship with an animal because he's dealing with man as an animal if he does that, okay? But of course God is not doing this and in the atonement, in the death of Jesus, God has provided a way that he can leave man's will free and yet have man able to come back to God. That deals a lot, of course, with the conditions. Now, we're going to talk about the grounds of salvation. There are two things to be kept separate all the time that we've already talked about. And they are what? What? Morals and metaphysics. Now, there's another thing that I said. I wasn't actually after that, but that's good. Um, there's another thing. Two things that would be kept separate. Right. Okay. Thank you. Grounds and conditions. Oops. <laughs> I'm determined to get that S in there. Conditions. Grounds and conditions. Now, there, we have to keep these separate when we talk about salvation. Grounds of salvation is God's part. The conditions of salvation is our part. And both are involved. In Calvinism, the grounds and the conditions are squashed together into being only God's part. When you have a theology of works, the idea that man can work his way into uh, relationship with God, it's all squashed into man's part. It's all squashed into the conditions. You see, they're both squashed together into man. But we keep these separate in that if God did not extend grace, if God didn't do something, we wouldn't have been able to be saved. Because he had great problems in his government that he had to take care of. And if he didn't solve those, we wouldn't have been able to be forgiven justly. But he solved them. okay? And then in the conditions, we must respond to that. It cannot be something that God does and we have no choice in, or it would not be a relationship. And so, since God has left us free, there are conditions to salvation. And this is very simply put in the Bible, that it is by grace through faith. It's by grace. That's the grounds of our salvation. God has extended grace. It's through faith. That's the condition of our salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's by grace, that's God's part, through faith, that's our part. It's a condition, not a work. But it's a necessary condition to be met in order that we be left as free beings to have a free relationship with God and our free wills are not annihilated. If it were only by grace, which is that—that's what the Calvinists constantly, that's their battle cry, is it's by grace you know, and I say yes. That's only half the story, folks. Paul the apostle said it's by grace through faith. He didn't say it's just by grace. He said it's by grace through faith. Yeah, they say faith is—they say faith is a gift from God. That's based on one very obscure scripture. Oh well, they try to base it on this verse as well. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The only problem is, is that the. Um, the that doesn't modify the faith. It either modifies the whole thing that goes before, or it modifies something even before that. Because the word, and that not of yourselves, is neuter, and the word faith is feminine. So it's not talking about the faith when it says, and that not of yourselves. It's probably referring to the whole thing, the salvation. Yeah, he could do that, but then you see, the reason he'd have to give every man a measure of faith is because they were totally depraved and weren't able to believe. See, so it's really, it all ties in very much together. I mean, that's tied to total depravity as well. Um, The obscure verse is that God has given every man a measure of faith. (laughs) Whatever that means. I don't know that I know what it means. God has given to every man the measure of faith. Anyway, so, yeah, I guess it would, it would say that God has given faith to every man, so it's still, still conditional, if you want to take it that way. I don't really know what that verse means. <laughs> so, let's leave it. Okay, now, um, we want to go through the problems that we saw and see how the death of Jesus handles those problems. How does it handle those problems? Now we had num- we had four of those. Number one is concerning God's government. Let me read to you a fabulous portion of the Scripture. Tremendous. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation through His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, now that seems very confusing until you really get into it and see what God God is saying. That's um, Romans 3, 23-26. God has demonstrated his righteousness in the death of Jesus. Now, what kind of righteousness is that? Well, under the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, God did not have the right to directly, completely release people from the penalty of their sins. He did not have the right to do so. And so what He did was He made a promise I am going to deal with the problems in my government in the future. Through the Messiah, I am going to deal with these problems. And on the basis of that promise, pointing forward to the future, people were allowed to receive a measure of what God wanted to be able to give them. They were able to receive forgiveness of sins, Um in the fact that they were let's see, how can I put it? They were able to receive forgiveness of sins in that God could take them and free them from um temporally, from there until the time that um, Jesus came, temporally, the punishment of going to the place of, of uh torment, and they could go to the place called paradise or um, Abraham's bosom. But God could not allow them directly into his presence. He couldn't do that. Because in order to be able to do that, God has got to show that He has accomplished as a past fact what was necessary to be able to to justly do so. And Jesus had not yet died. And so He could not do that. We'll get into that a little more in in a minute. But under the Old Covenant, God passed over sins, it says in the Scripture. He overlooked them. Not in the sense that he didn't pay any attention to the fact that people sinned. You can see that in the Old Testament. He sure paid attention to the fact that people sinned. Okay? But what he did was he covered them, or he overlooked them. The word atonement means covering. And through sacrifices, God covered them. But, as it says in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. See? Because they're not a sufficient sacrifice to be the atonement that's necessary for man to be completely for sin to be completely dealt with. And so God passed over things. He was making a promise, looking forward to the time when He would deal with the problems in His government so that people could be completely released. Okay? Now, so in God's government, according to this verse, that is that God demonstrated His righteousness because in the past He overlooked sin. He just, He sort of covered it. And then people could come to God and say, uh, what you doing, God? <laughs> Overlooking sin? You're forbearing sin, and, uh, you haven't accomplished all the pro- all the, um, or you haven't settled all the problems in your government yet. You haven't made a way for people to be completely set free justly. And God says, yes, but I'm going to. I'm looking forward to that. It is going to happen. I've given promise of that. So on the basis of promise, I can give them a measure of what I'm going to do in the future, but I can't give them everything yet. He couldn't justly do that. Okay? We'll get into that a little more in a, in a while. So then, he's demonstrating his righteousness. When God uh, displayed Jesus as a public propitiation, that is, that the word indicates dealing with the problems in his government, not trying to calm God down, because God didn't need calming down. Okay, But it was dealing with problems in God's government so that God could forgive people. So that when God did this, he displayed Jesus. What he did was demonstrated his righteousness. And he says, you see, I passed over sins under the Old Covenant. I passed over the sins that were committed previously and I was looking forward to the time when I would do this. And now, ta-da! I've done it. I've displayed my righteousness because I have dealt with the problems in my government and now I can justly set people free and give them everything that I wanted to give them. Okay? But God had to also show His righteousness concerning passing over sins in in the past as well as being able to forgive people presently. He had to do both of those. So that's what Paul's talking about here, in that that people could look at God and say, what were you doing forgiving people back then when you hadn't dealt with the problems in your government? You see, he says, well, eventually, when I did come and died for the sins of the world, I did display my righteousness. You see, it eventually did happen, and they were forgiven on the basis of promise. And I did not communicate. Everything to them that can now be communicated to people who believe, because it wouldn't have been just for me to do so. We'll look at some of those things in a minute. Okay, and secondly, so, oh, well, wait a second. Let's not go on just yet. That God is just, that is, He's dealing with His government. He continues to be just in His government through the death of Jesus, and He becomes the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That he upholds his government. He's just. And at the same time, he's made a way for people to be released in the death of Jesus through what has happened on the cross because he dealt with the problems in his government. We'll get into that in a detail in a minute. Okay? Now, God was just to his character. God was just to his character in that through the life, the the incarnation, the life, the death, the, the resurrection of Jesus, God has shown us His character. Um, The Scripture says that Jesus put the Godhead on display for us. God has shown us what He is like. Jesus is the exact representation, the complete um, uh, effulgence of God's nature revealed to us. See? Jesus said, He that has seen Me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And so, Jesus in His life and death made known to us the whole attitude of the Godhead. He's made known to us the compassion of God. He's made known to us the loving kindness of God. He's made known to us the justice of God. And so at any place where a man comes and says, God, I have questions about your character. I think you're an ogre. Then God can point and say, see, I've pointed out what I'm like in actually becoming a man. I've made myself known. I've revealed myself to you. I've shown myself. Not only in living, but also in the death that I that I bore so that you could be free from sin. And so what happens when the person perceives this with their mind? It begins to straighten out their wrong concept of God. I thought God was an ogre, but he gave himself so that I could be free from sin. I thought God was an ogre, but he became a man and went through all the problems that I go through. I thought God was an ogre, but he made a way so that I could come to know him again when I was in rebellion against him. And when you begin to see the character of God, it automatically begins to show you your selfishness. You see? God wasn't the one that was at fault. Look what he's done in history to bring me back to himself. Look at the compassion that he has displayed. Look at the mercy that he has expressed. And so it begins to straighten out in man's mind his false concept because of his own sin. begins to straighten out that false concept so that man begins to be prepared to be reestablished in relationship with God. And then thirdly, in the death of Jesus on the cross, man gets a display of his selfishness and what his selfishness does. That is not all the cross does. (laughs) The cross is not just a moral influence to move us towards God. It does that, but it is much, much more than that. If the, if the, if moral influence were all that was necessary, God could have done something else than what he did. See? But something else that, there was something else that God had to deal with and not just that man needed to recognize that he was selfish. That wasn't it. There had to be a lot more than that, but it is one thing that the atonement does. It shows man his selfishness. The atonement of Jesus was necessary in that God could not justly forgive man if he didn't grapple with the problems in his government. How do I now say the soul that sins it shall live? God couldn't do that. See? He had to grapple with those problems, and he did by becoming a man and dying for our sins. And in the midst of that, the whole act as well shows us what our selfishness is like. We see the love displayed, the openness, the honesty, the revealing of himself, the giving of himself and in contrast to his giving we begin to recognize our selfishness our pride as he humbled himself our hypocrisy as he was completely honest with what he knew to do see we we see in his life a contrast that is so amazing to what and sense so such a contrast to what we've been living that we begin to see our selfishness as we look at that ever been around somebody that's just so loving It makes you recognize what you're like? Yes. And that's what happens when you're around God. (laughs) And you see what He does. And you look at the cross and you begin to see what that means. And you see the love that was displayed there. It begins to show you your selfishness. Okay? Then uh, lastly, number four, the death of Jesus on the cross leaves man's will completely free. Because in what God has done in the death of Jesus on the cross, as we spoke about before, He made provision for man's sin. And He says, I've done what I can do to make a way for you to come back to Me. Now the choice is up to you. Will you come and put yourself in a place by meeting the conditions that I can justly set you free from the penalty of the sin? Now, in In the atonement, in the actual death of Jesus itself, God provided the grounds legally upon which he could release people from the penalty of their sin if they meet the conditions. If they meet the conditions. They always come together. If the person does not meet the conditions, then God must carry out the penalty of the law upon the person. Okay? And so he's upheld his law, and at the same time he's provided a way for people to be set free. Now, we're going to look at the principle of the atonement back at our, our chart with God and man and government and law and so forth. We'll go back to that chart if you want to look at it in your notes. There's God, man, government, law, sanctions, Okay, now the reason that God enforces sanctions is what? To obtain right the, the try to obtain the try to obtain it's the only thing you can do really is try to obtain the highest well-being of God and the universe, which is the whole end of God's government. okay Or, or as Paul puts it, the goal or the main point of the commandment is love. okay What God's trying to get at, In enforcing sanctions and in in promoting law and in in making government and expressing himself as governor, he is trying to get us to love God and to love man like we should and to do what is for the highest well-being of the universe. Now, these sanctions have a function. They are functional. They do not eternally exist. God instituted them in order to promote this function, the end of the government. Okay? Now, this is the major crux of the atonement, is that if God can find a way to promote the end of the government in as strong a fashion as those sanctions will do, then He can switch systems. Do you understand? He's not breaking His law. He's not negating the law. He's still upholding law because He's still trying to promote the same end. He's still working at the same thing, trying to get people to, to love God and to love their neighbor as themselves. Okay? And if he can find a way to be able to get the person to fulfill the end of the government, then he has, he has upheld his position as governor and he can release the person from the penalty that they deserve to receive. But he must, in that person's life, accomplish the end of the government in their life. And if he doesn't do so, he would not be fulfilling his role as governor. Okay? I'll try to give it as an illustration. Here we have disobedience and we have hell down here. Separation from God. Or eternal punishment or whatever you want to call it. The sanction of the law, basically. And the reason that this exists, the soul that sins, it shall die, is because God is trying to impress us with the importance of loving Him And loving other people. And if God, as governor, can still impress us just as much to try to get us to do what we know is right in some other way than this, then He can release us from that. But He's got to accomplish that in our lives before He can do it. Justly. Is it clicking or shall I go through it again? Go through it one more time. The reason that the sanction has been established is because God is, as governor must do so. He must do that to try to promote the end of the government or he will not be being responsible as governor because he feels himself responsible to try to get every being to live according to what they know is right, to love God and to love other other beings and the creation in general. And so as governor, he's felt himself responsible to be governor and to express this government. You should do what is right. And then the way that he has enforced that is through establishing sanctions, consequences to the law. And the negative consequence is separation from him, okay, and alienation from others. There are other consequences involved too. But the consequence, negative consequence of the law, he uses to impress our minds to try to get us to do what is right. Now, he can't force us. He can only try to get us to do what's right. And so he comes to Pete and he says, Pete, the soul that sins, it shall die. And what's he doing in Pete? He's trying to impress Pete with the importance of being loving. He's trying to impress on Pete, you should be loving, Pete. And as governor, I must enforce this on you if you don't, because it's so important. The highest well-being of God and and man are at stake. Okay? So then, what he does with this is he impresses it on man's mind and uses the sanction in man's mind as an influence to try to get him uh, to perform what is good, to do what is right, and that in that, God is fulfilling his role as governor of the universe, as moral governor. He's fulfilling his role. He's being responsible if he impresses man's mind sufficiently with with uh, some kind of a sanction, some kind of a consequence that man will go in his mind, the highest well-being of God and the universe are at stake in my choices. I'd better do what is right. Now, if God can find a way to set this aside because he finds another way that is just as sufficient, if not greater, to be able to impress man's mind with the fact that he should do what is good, if he he can find another way to uh, to maintain his government, you see, to impress man's mind with the importance of doing that which is right, then he can lay this aside if he can accomplish that in the person's life. Okay? And you know the way he's done that is what? The atonement in the cross. He impresses man, man's mind, with the atonement Jesus, with the death of Jesus on the cross, he accomplishes in man what he was originally setting out to do. Only upon condition something has got to happen in man or God has to carry out the original penalty. And if something happens in man so that he starts fulfilling what he should have been originally fulfilling... Then people, then a being can come to God and say, "God, what is this? You're not going to, you're not going to penalize them for what they deserve." And He says, "Well, I've accomplished my role as moral governor. I've accomplished in their life what I set out to accomplish. I've obtained the end of the law in their life because they are now living in this fashion. And the reason that they're living that way is because of what happened on the cross." Okay? They've been so impressed with me and with their own selfishness that their whole life has been changed, and they they are now meeting the end of the law, what I set out to accomplish, and so I don't need this anymore in their life. You see? Hell doesn't impress me as much as the cross does. It doesn't impress me. If I if I um I mean, it impresses me, yes. It still does that. But it doesn't impress me like the cross does. See, Um, Hell points out only justice. And mercy, well, I can't say that really either. You have to look pretty deeply, though, to see it. (laughs) That it points out mercy as well. But it does point out mercy because God is being loving when he sets up the penalty of hell. Um, So I won't say that. But I will say that hell no longer impresses me the way the cross does. When I consider sin in my life, it's always in comparison to the cross and what was displayed there and not in comparison to hell. You see? And God impresses me with the cross. If I'm looking at temptation, God impresses me with the cross and says, look at what happened. See? See what you see. What sin does. See what, what it was necessary for me to do in order to be able to justly forgive you because I loved you and wanted to bring you back to myself. And then I compare the cross with the temptation that I'm facing, and it just sort of dissolves, you see? And God accomplishes in my life through the cross what He originally set out to accomplish through the sanction of hell. And if God can do that, you see, then He can justly release the person from the penalty that they deserve to have because He's accomplished the end of the government in their life in another fashion. And so this is what we call substitution a substitution has been made. And that is, because Jesus has died, and through His death, I have been brought to the place where the end of the government is accomplished in me, then that is accepted, through that whole process there, is accepted as a substitution for the penalty of hell. Shall I go to that again? Because of the death of Jesus, and the, the thing that is accomplished in me, that is upon condition, of course, the, the death of Jesus, and the thing that it is accomplished in me, that God has brought me to the place, through the display of mercy in the cross, He's brought me to the place where I am now fulfilling the end of the government that He set out to accomplish in me, that now He can lay aside the penalty of hell. Because that's not necessary anymore. you understand that? Now, that, that still, that says, that's conditional. That is upon the fact that if I am accomplishing in my life the end of the government, then I fit into this category here and not this one. If I rebel again, and I no longer fit into this category, this provision that's been made for me to be free, I come back under this. Do you understand? God must still hold me according to the law here, Okay, if I if I don't meet the conditions here, this is all upon condition that God can accomplish in my life what He set out to accomplish through His government. And if God can accomplish that in me, then He can release me from the penalty of the law. Okay? God does God does not ever bring us to the place where we're not guilty, but He brings us to the place where, in the execution of the law, He does not execute upon us what we deserve to have, because He's accomplished in our lives what He set out to accomplish through that penalty and the influence of that upon our minds. Is it sinking in? Okay, and we call this substitution. We talk about the substitution of of the death of Jesus. There was a substitution that was made. God accepts my repentance connected with the atonement of Jesus, those two together, the grounds and the conditions. He accepts that as a substitution for this, for the penalty of hell that I'd, I really deserve to have. Okay, it's so what we call substitution. So a substitution took place at the cross, not a payment. And God has grappled with the problems in his government, and he's handled them. But you can see as well why there are conditions for salvation. Because if God doesn't accomplish in my life what he set out to accomplish, that is, if I don't meet those, those conditions, then God still has to hold me under the, uh, the original penalty. In order to be just, okay. said it many times, but uh, some, for some, some it may be a new thought, and so I want to um, be sure that we get it.